This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. As I was uh, reflecting for this morning, this week, um, recently I finished a book. Actually, uh, Mike Allen preached last week and he quoted Paul Kalanithi, who wrote a book called When Breath Becomes Air. And uh, I recently had read the book and it's one of those books the New York Times reviews said that you don't, it's not one of those books you can read and then move on and be unaffected. Um, it, I, I wept multiple times as I read the book, just driving uh, down the road, listening to the book, uh, just impacted me, laying in my bed at night, listening to the book with all the lights off. And it was, uh, I don't know exactly how to describe it, uh, but I thoroughly was helped by his reflections. His reflect, uh, Paul um, was a, Uh, neurosurgeon resident. And so it's one of the most grueling um, residencies you can do. It's one of the most grueling disciplines in medicine. The residency itself is 10 years long and that's after medical school. And so Paul, uh, who had a background in literature, a master's in literature, a master's in philosophy, and then went to medical school and then was in his 10th year of this residency, gets diagnosed with stage four lung cancer at 36. Uh, as Paul uh, reflects in the book and tells his story, he was driven by one question. uh, What is the meaning of life and how do I face death? Paul uh, went away from the faith in his 20s and came back later in his life before he got ill. And so his reflections, although you don't know that part until the end, are filled with wisdom and filled with hope. And he tells this story after he had been diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, uh, which is very rare for someone his age. They did not have children and they were waiting till after his residency uh, to have children, but they have the question, should we have children now? And he shares some of their intimate conversation. And uh, what he says is, "I I couldn't bear to picture Lucy, who's his wife, husbandless and childless after I died but I was adamant that the decision ultimately be hers because he knew that not only would she 
be raising this child. She also would be taking care of a newborn and a dying husband at the same time. And so as they were talking about this, she asks him a question one night when they're laying in bed talking about this. And she says, Paul, don't you think that saying goodbye to your child will make your death more painful? And he replied to her, wouldn't it be great if it did? And I was shocked. What does he mean by that? Well, he, he finishes up. He says, he goes on to say that he and Lucy both felt that life was not about avoiding suffering. And he said, after years of reflection, both as a physician and as a human being driven by this question of meaning and death and how those two things go together, he and they had come to realize that the easiest death was not necessarily the best death. So after getting blessing from their families, they did decide to have a child. And he said they decided to carry on living in that moment instead of carrying on dying. Paul died when his daughter was eight months old. You see, why do I tell that story? I tell that story because they had to wrestle with a fundamental question in that unique way, in a way that I don't wish on anyone. But we get to learn from them in that moment that they wrestled with the tension, and that is this. Can we live a joyful, full life when suffering is always a part of life? You see, the narrative that we're told is that true joy is found when you eradicate suffering. That's the narrative we live in. True joy isn't possible until after suffering. It's certainly, not, it's certainly not a good idea to rejoice in the midst of suffering, is what we hear. And we as Christians know that suffering should not belong on this earth, but the world has fallen, and we are fallen, and there are consequences to sin, and we all experience suffering. And we know that in this fallen world, suffering and rejoicing go together. Always. And in our passage today, Paul particularly is talking about a specific type of suffering. He's talking about these Christians who are suffering for no other reason than because they have their faith in Jesus. That's why they're suffering. And he's writing as a pastor, he's writing as a teacher and a preacher, and he's writing to comfort them in the midst of their suffering. It's not they might suffer, it's not they could suffer for Jesus, it's that they are suffering for Jesus. And that's what he's writing about. So in this section... Peter, I think I said Paul a couple times, this is Peter. In this section, Peter reminds them of two aspects of suffering. He's actually already covered this material and because we're getting towards the end of the book, he's circling back on his main theme in the, in the book, which is suffering and rejoicing and how they go together. So I wanna point out two, two reminders that he gives them in this passage today, okay? The first reminder is this. Purif there's a purifying purpose of their suffering. There's a purifying purpose. So as the letter does come to a close, Peter reminds them of what he told them at the beginning of the letter in chapter one, verses six through nine, uh, which will be on the screen. In chapter one, six through nine, at the very beginning, he says this. In this, he's talking about the call to worship that we read in their inheritance, in the glory that's promised to them. In those things, verse, nine, uh, verse six, you rejoice Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, 
the salvation of your souls. So our verse sounds a lot like that, doesn't it? It's just, it's almost a recapitulation and an expounding, a saying, don't forget this, that we've already talked about this. Don't forget this. He reminds them of the purpose of their suffering and he wants to make sure before he goes too far that he's talking about suffering for the sake of being a Christian. Uh, If you have your worship folder, you can look here at verse 14. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And then verse 15, he says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So he wants to make sure that that we understand, his readers understand what he's talking about. He's talking about suffering for the sake of Christ. And he pulls this imagery of a fiery trial or a fiery ordeal, some translations uh, render it. And this idea of fire, as we talked about in chapter one, is an idea of purification. It's a like manner to precious metal, the way that impurities are taken out of metals. And so it happens by putting it in a fire. So you put it in a fire, and what happens is some impurities that you may not have seen, the heat causes them to rise to the surface so that they will be burned up in the fire. But what's left is the pure metal. And so the more that you put this metal, this precious metal in fire, the more impurities that come out and the more pure the metal actually is and what remains. And that's the image. And as we said in chapter one, Peter is teaching that the way that applies to us in our life is that suffering is like a fiery trial. When we suffer for anything, but particularly he is talking about for the name of Christ, but when we suffer, what happens is we start to really find out what our functional faith and trust is in. When we start to suffer, the heat gets turned up and the dross or the impurities or the false faith in us comes up. And that is a painful process. And the the more often that we experience that, the more pure our faith becomes. And the interesting thing about this is, for me, from an untrained eye, I, I know that, I might not see impurities. It may look like really good quality metal to me. But the the silversmith or the one who's working the metal, he knows. He knows the purity. And me with an untrained eye, I might think, wow, this is really pure. But but he's, no, no, I've got to put it back in again. I've got to put it back in again. And sure enough, I think we would see an expert silversmith, we'd see they're right. And we'd see more in impurities coming out and being burned away by the fire and then a, a shiny, pure metal left behind. So what that tells me in this imagery that Peter's reminding them of is that we all should know there are areas in our life that are impure. There are areas in our life where we are placing our trust and hope and faith in those things and not the Lord. And we don't know until we're in the fire. We don't know until we're in the fire, until we're faced with the decision, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. But here, here are some areas, right? I mean, it is the most, uh, the most profound times for me when I realize how much I trust in competency and my own strength. Am I supposed to know that when everything's going well? No, for me, and I know for you, it happens when I'm in this fiery ordeal where I feel like there's pressure coming from every side. 
and, and I don't feel like it's fair and I don't know what's going on, but I feel increasingly weak. And then as I reflect on why I feel weak, I realize I feel weak because I was trusting in my own competency. I was waiting for my competency to come back before I could lead out in faith. I think that happens to all of us. For some, it might not be competency. For some, it might be respectability, right? I mean, to go back to the immediate context, what if you're in a conversation and you have the opportunity to share Christ? And what I mean by that is uh, it's, it's so obvious. It's it just, you don't even have to try. It's right there. But, but you're with coworkers who view you as very respectable, right? You're a, you're a business person or you're a professional and you really like to be respected, and you love Jesus and you're not afraid to share your faith, you don't think, but you realize I'm risking something here. If, if I say anything, they may respect me less. They may view me all of a sudden as narrow-minded. They may view me as not enlightened. And so you choose to remain respectable because that's really what you trust in for your righteousness is that people would respect you. Uh, right now in a political season, I won't meddle too much because it's right here, right? He says, you know, meddler, and I don't want to suffer for meddling. But uh, I would say that some of us find our righteousness either in how progressive we are or how conservative we are. And as we talked about when I preached on, uh, on politics and government and how we might interact with them, you know, one of the things I said is uh, Jesus is not behind any party platform, right? Because every party platform uh, has something wrong with it, right? It has, it has uh, dysfunction in it because every human system has dysfunction in it. But the problem is, is that especially sometimes like now, we think as Christians, uh, we need to hold a certain uh, party line. We need to either be more progressive because the church hasn't been progressive and we've, we haven't cared about marginalized peoples and all of that, or we, we find our, our pride and our righteousness in holding to conservatism when all those other people in the church, especially young people like me, are moving more progressive or whatever it is, wherever you find yourself. And then you find yourself in the moment when you realize, if I was to honestly read the scriptures, I would have to agree with the other side. And then you don't. And the reason you might not is because you've put a little too much faith and trust in, a, in your own ideology and you don't wanna have to seem confused or like you might be one of them. Now I'm done meddling. And it could be your reputation. It could be your bank account, right? We all have instances where there's, in the fiery trial, in that moment, we realize where our trust really is and we need to repent and let it be burned up. I was thinking about this and I was thinking about um, the power of financial reversal uh, in people's lives. Um, you think about the economy or you can think about times in the Great Depression or in 2008. I remember people in the church I served who lost a lot of money in 2008, they, uh, and now the, the course of their lives, they were in their late 50s, early 60s, and the course of their life is radically changed because of this financial reversal. And uh, to watch these people bring their struggle into the light and talk about their disappointment and their discouragement, and when I heard actual numbers, it made me sick to my stomach. So as I'm listening to these stories, I also heard amazing testimony that in the, in the midst of this trial, uh, how they felt more alive 
and they felt more committed and more trusting in the Lord and his wisdom and his kindness and his provision for them. And so I'll go back to this. In a fallen world, suffering is always mixed with rejoicing. And we must not buy into this narrative that says rejoicing is only found apart from any type of suffering. That's just not the real world. So Peter goes on, the passage is clear that God is purifying his church and in his wisdom and his kindness, he uses suffering of various kinds. That's what he says in chapter one. You suffer trials of various kinds, all types of things. It could be marginalization, it could be slander, it could be physical abuse. He talks about all of them in the letter. If you look at verse 17 with me, uh, he says this. This is, he's pulling from Old Testament prophet language. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What in the heck is he talking about? Judgment, household of God? I thought, what's going on here? Well, he's talking about the fact that God's judgment is moving in the world, even today. God's judgment is moving in the world and it's moving through the earth and the church is not exempt from this. We, God's people, don't escape in this sense. That when we are God's children, when the fire of judgment burns the church, it's a testing and it's a proving with fire. It's not a consuming fire. It doesn't consume us. It tests us. It purifies us. But he points just in verse 18, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So if it purifies the church and it's part of God's mercy and grace to purify us by bringing trials of various kinds in his own mercy and kindness, well, when it burns in the world, it either awakens them to soberness and to faith or ultimately destruction. That's what Peter is saying. He says that is real life. That's what's happening in suffering. Now, when he says though in verse 18, that if the righteous is scarcely saved, he doesn't mean that we're barely saved. He doesn't mean that Jesus' sacrifice for us was just enough and we barely are saved. What he means is that because we're saved and because we're righteous, God is also making us righteous. And when he's making us righteous, he does not spare us from suffering. He doesn't spare us from trials of various kinds. And in his wisdom, it's actually part of the journey of becoming more righteous and more holy. That's what he's talking about. By scarcely, he just means it's not easy. The Christian life is not easy. And that's what he's pointing out to these Christians who are suffering. So really, the, the the upshot is this. God hates sin so much. And he loves his children so much that he'll do whatever needs to be done to rid us of what he hates. And it's for our flourishing. And sometimes it's really hard. And Peter's saying, none of us are spared. We all will suffer various trials in various degrees. And it's all in God's kindness and it's all in his wisdom. And we don't understand, but we trust. So the first reminder then is there is a purifying power to suffering. It's it's not meaningless, right? It's planned and it purifies, and it strengthens our faith, and it consumes false faith. That's what he reminds them of before he closes out this letter. Then the second reminder is this. There is an unavoidable choice in suffering. 
there is an unavoidable choice in suffering. Peter knows his readers have a choice, right? When, I mean, when suffering comes, you, can av- you can't avoid the choice to either choose Jesus or to choose safety or to choose comfort or to choose security. You have a choice. When, when the pressure, when the heat starts turning up, you either jump out of the fire or you turn to Jesus. That's, that's what he's reminding them of. We, that, those are the choices. And I think it's important, Peter isn't only comforting his readers in the midst of suffering, he's actually trying to persuade them. The whole letter, he's trying to persuade them that it's better to keep choosing Jesus instead of hitting the eject button and ejecting to comfort or to safety or to anything else. And I wanna walk through this, I wanna show you uh, how he's persuading them. Uh, Look in verse 13 with me. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So this is what he's saying. Is he saying, if we rejoice now in our sufferings, we will rejoice then. You see, our joy now is through the means of suffering and the means of attaining our joy then is suffering now. Now, what I, what I love about this, and I've, and I've mentioned this before, Peter is Peter. He's a man, he wrote this book. He had experiences that we've learned about in the scriptures, right? So Peter knows what it's like acutely. And I think chronically in his life, if we look in Acts, but we'll just look at one example really quick of a time when Peter chose to eject as the heat was turned up on him. And he chose comfort and safety over Jesus. The time was when Jesus was arrested and Peter follows Jesus and he can see Jesus. When you read in the gospel, it's amazing. He has line of sight on Jesus as Jesus is being questioned. And he's out warming himself by the fire, nervously, I imagine, watching what's happening. And remember what happened earlier. Peter said, I'll never leave you. And Jesus said, well, actually, tonight, before you hear three uh, sounds, from the crowing rooster, you'll deny me three times. Before you hear it, you'll deny me three times. And you don't know what that means when you read that. He didn't know what that means, but now we'll fast forward. Now we're back to the fire again. And uh, a, a teen girl, servant girl, hears his Galilean accent and she questions him. And he says, no, 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 no I'm not with him. I'm not with Jesus. And she says, aren't you one of them? Aren't you with Jesus? No, 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 I'm not with him. And then again, they ask him, they press him. And then a third time, you know, I imagine him getting angry. No! And then he makes eye contact with Jesus. Jesus just looks at him and he hears the noise. And it says he went away and he wept bitterly. So it's that man who's saying, it's not worth it. It's not worth hitting the eject button as the heat gets turned up because you know that in that moment you can rejoice and in the future you will rejoice forever, which is why in chapter one, he says, now for a little time you may, right? He's trying to say this compared to that is nothing. So he's trying to persuade them from his own experience as well as what is to be true in the scriptures. Then verse 14, the next place he tries to persuade them. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, Peter is not saying we should seek out suffering, right? The Bible does not teach we should seek out suffering. Rather, he's saying you are suffering and let me help frame this out of how you are to endure it and how you are to experience it, how you are to think about it. 
And I think everyone, rightfully so, is a little scared to suffer. I don't think that's bad. I don't think that's wrong. But as I've reflected on my own life and talked to other Christians, I think as we think about in the West, as marginalization and other types of persecution may ramp up in time, right? No government lasts forever. No, no uh, country uh, stays the same forever. And so it's possible that some of us or our children will experience persecution in ways that 70% of the, other, of the majority world do, 70% of Christians in the world do. So as we reflect on that, I think some of us feel a lot of emotions. We feel guilty, we feel uh, timid, we feel all sorts of things. I don't want us to feel those things, but what I definitely don't want us to feel is fear, right? Some of us are scared, right? What if I can, can I handle it? Has my faith ever been tested like that? Can I handle it? Well, I think that they were thinking the same things. Don't forget, they are not super Christians. They're just like you and just like me. And we need what? The spirit of the Lord. And that's exactly what he tells them. What he's saying is, this is what he's teaching them. Small or large, whatever suffering, in your greatest trials will, will be your greatest time of consolation. That's what he says. Peter's saying that in those moments, the Holy Spirit will comfort us and rest upon us. And it's the same spirit that rested on Jesus when he was in the garden. It's the same spirit that rested on Jesus as he was being tempted in any way. As the heat was turned up on Jesus, he was comforted the most in those moments. And Peter's saying the same will happen to you. A Scottish Presbyterian pastor, Samuel Rutherford, uh, famously said that the Lord keeps his finest wine in the cellar of affliction. This is the exact quote. When I am in the cellar of affliction, I look for the Lord's choicest wines. And Charles Spurgeon, who, who loved and lived after Samuel Rutherford, the Baptist preacher from London, said this, they who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. And the reason is, is because in our greatest times of trial, we receive our greatest consolation from the Lord. That's, his, that's what he's trying to persuade us with. And then lastly, before we close, verse 16. He's trying to persuade us with verse 16. Uh, actually, it's verse 19. If the righteous know, therefore, verse 19, therefore, let us, let those who suffer according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So he sums up the section by this reminder. I wanna point out one word. I wanna point out the word entrust. Uh, the entrust could be translated deposit. And when I think of deposit, I automatically think of banks, right? I go to make a deposit. Now, they didn't have the same banking system that we did, but they still had valuable things, right? Maybe not the same currency, but they had valuable things they wanted to keep safe. So if you and I, you and I don't keep all of our resources or all of our money at home, right? Uh, like just sitting there, we put it somewhere safe. And for us, we put it in a bank. Well, there were no banks then. So if they were gonna leave on a journey and they had valuable things, they needed to entrust those valuable things to someone who was trustworthy, right? So they had to give those things to that person. When, as I was thinking about that, I thought about when I was a kid, probably about third grade, um, there was this commercial where I'm from with this local bank. And there was a jingle. And at the end of the jingle, this man awkwardly came on and said, FDIC insured. Now, as a kid, I thought that was strange. 
And I had no idea what it meant. So as I heard it enough, I eventually asked my dad one time, dad, what does it mean? Why do they say this bank is FDIC insured? Now, uh, if you don't know what it is, Google it later. I'm not gonna tell you what it, it all means, but he didn't explain insurance to me. But what he said was this, and I remember this. He said, well, basically, when you put your money in a bank, you wanna know that nobody's gonna take it. And you wanna know that if for some reason something happens to it, that uh, you won't lose it. I was like, so like if, the, if it gets robbed or it burns down, Right? And he's like, yeah, basically, you know, yeah, yeah. So if you put your money in the bank, you know that it's gonna be safe there. That's what that means. And so I kept watching the, this commercial after that happened. And I remember thinking to myself in my third grade-ish brain that if it's possible that there are other banks that don't have this thing called FDIC, if that's possible, why would I ever put my money in that bank? It seems really foolish. And that's exactly what Peter's saying right? You have an unavoidable choice. Where are you going to entrust not your money, not your your resources, not your prized possessions, but your soul? And what he means is that's every part of you. That's your body. That's your future. That's your children. That's your dreams. That's your desires. That's every, he says earlier, all conduct, every part of your life. And so I think that's a good place to end as any. Where are you going to entrust yourself to? Are, you, are we going to hit the eject button and entrust ourselves to competency, uh, to our bank account, to uh, our dreams? Or are we going to entrust ourselves? Are we going to give up, put our full deposit into the Lord? And he says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. He's faithful. This is better than FDIC insurance. He's faithful. And then I love how he ends with this because it's very instructive. He says, while doing good. You see, when you are secure in the Lord, when you've entrusted yourself in the faithful creator, in your fear, in your insecurity, you don't have to stay turned in on yourself. You don't have to cut everyone else out of your life because you're so anxious about your own life, about the future, about what might happen. But if you entrust yourself to a faithful creator, he's saying you actually can give your life away. You don't have to hoard yourself and your things. You can still do good. You can give your life to others. You can pour it out. You can take risk. You can love. And he wants us to know that and he wants us to do that and he would persuade us so I hope he persuades us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we want to entrust ourselves to you. We wanna entrust our whole selves to you, everything. And we wanna be good stewards of all that you've given us. You've given us things to enjoy and we wanna enjoy them. Uh, we don't wanna hoard them, we wanna enjoy them. We, you've given us things to, to use and to steward uh, for the good of others. <clears throat> and we need, we want to en- entrust ourselves, to deposit ourselves in you. And it will free us up to love and to serve others. We thank you that you're patient with us because of course we fail at this. Of course Peter failed at this. And the last thing Peter wants to do is try to point us to how amazing his faith is. What he wants to do is persuade us and point us to you, Jesus Holy Spirit, we know you're with us. We know you dwell in us and we ask that you would change us, that you would bring things to mind, that you would 
comfort us in the Father's love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.